Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and ecological crises that we face today. And they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. Jeremy Lent is an author and an integrator. He has authored The Patterning Instinct and The Web of Meaning, two books which have come out to real rave reviews about how he manages to map uh, culture, science, history, humanity, spirituality to get a better understanding of why we're in the mess that we are today and what to do about it. Jeremy believes that the solution uh, to our problems is about creating an interconnected future, uh, one where people prioritize interconnectedness and better understand interconnectedness. And this is a very interesting uh, interview because it took me a while to push past that resistance to what sounds like initially um, a spiritual solution to a very real problem. Uh, but the more I listened to Jeremy, the more I got to understand actually how that sense of interconnectedness could actually be a tool, a language that isn't alienating, and also how it can inform the way that we need to understand the solutions that we need to propose and the way that we need to understand how everything in the world actually does interact with each other. So I really, really enjoyed speaking with him, and I hope you all get a lot out of this episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you love it, support the podcast at planetcritical.com, where everyone now has access to the interview transcripts. Becoming a paid subscriber also supports my independent investigations into climate corruption around the world. I expose dangerous industry greenwashing and the world's worst climate fraudsters. If that's important to you, join the Planet Critical community who help make that happen. And to those of you who are already supporting this podcast and my work, thank you so much. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me on Planet Critical. It is such a pleasure oh. to have you on the show. Yeah, I'm just thrilled to be here with you, Rachel. Looking forward to it. Me too. Could you give a bit of background about your work to people that maybe haven't come across you yet? And then we'll get as quickly as we can to the patterning instinct. Yeah, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Basically, I, I call myself an author and integrator uh, because I see my work primarily about integrating all the different parts of our lived experience that our dominant culture considers to be separate. And I, I write primarily about the underlying ways in which we make sense of the world, uh, like our worldview, if you will. And primarily, I think my key message is that this kind of mess our civilization is in right now is really um, because of these underlying ways in which we do make sense of things, almost like the operating system of our civilization. And in order to change towards a more life-affirming future, we've got to go to those deeper layers and change those levels. It's not enough to just invest in more renewables or something. Mm. We've got to like go to those deeper layers. And so a lot of my work and my books are about that kind of looking at those, um, the foundational issues of how we make sense of things. Okay. And before we get into all of that, which we absolutely will, um, how did you come across this this field or how did you stumble uh, upon it? Well, it was primarily through my own investigation um, into what what my life was all about. So it came from my own sort of personal journey because uh, I'd spent the first part of my life actually um, as a successful business person. I'd started an internet company during the first mm -hmm. dot-com boom, took it public, um, but then things crashed around me and um, my wife at the time who passed away some years back got very sick. I left the company to look after her. The company collapsed because I left it too early. Um, mm -hmm. And um, uh, sadly, uh, yeah, for a number of years, I looked after her, but she sort of suffered from cognitive decline. So I kind of lost the, uh, the, my sort of most important relationship in my mm -hmm. life. So it felt like things were crashed around me and I was determined that I, whatever I did for the rest of my life is going to be truly meaningful. But then I was asking my question, where does meaning come from? Mm. What, are these, I, what are these ideas that we're told we're meant to believe in? I didn't want to take somebody else's word for it. So I spent a lot of time investigating my own uh, understanding of meaning. And that led to these books that I've written um, 
through my own investigation. One was an earlier book called The Patterning Instinct that you just mentioned. Uh, the subtitle that is A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning, because a lot of my work was to understand the history of how we've arrived at our current sense of meaning. Um, it was only through my own personal investigation I got to realize um, there was a crisis of meaning in our entire culture, which is leading us to this catastrophe we're heading mm. toward. And my most recent book is called The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and a Spiritual um, sorry, I've got my subtitle wrong. Um, and so it's called the Web of Meaning: Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. Because it's not just spiritual, but other kinds of wisdom. Mm. And the notion there is that it is possible for us to actually find a worldview that is both scientifically coherent and really connects with the deepest insights from traditional wisdom. So a worldview could actually lead us to a sustainable and generative future. And what, oh, where, to, where to dig into that? Um, let's go back, let's start and go backwards. Like what would that worldview look like then? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, that's a key question. Basically, it would be a worldview, uh, in essence, of like of deep connectedness. Mm -hmm. That if we look at the dominant worldview, versus the worldview that I'm talking about that's possible for us. The biggest contrast between them is that we are led to believe in our dominant culture and the way we make sense of things, that everything is basically separate. Um, and so we're told that, you know, science deals with the material world as it is, and spirituality is like some separate domain, and those two things shouldn't really um, uh, sort of connect up. We're told that our minds are separate from our bodies, and we're told fundamentally that humans are sort of in essence different from the rest of nature. Mm. And so we should see nature as something to basically extract from. It's like there for us to take advantage of, to exploit. Um, and we're told the humans are separate from each other. Yeah, that each of us are sort of separate individual units and <clears throat> we're trying to optimize for ourselves. All those are ba this notion of separation. And a worldview of deep interconnectedness actually focuses on the connections between things rather than the separations. And it leads to very different ways of meaning making and very different outcomes of understanding our place in the universe. Could you give some examples of how we could uh, take uh, something in our culture that is defined by separateness and then apply a framework of connectedness and, you know, output yeah, a different sure. result? Yeah. Well, maybe one uh, way of looking at things is this notion of seeing humans as um, sort of being this kind of, um, we are the sort of essence of um, what is valuable. Mm. And the rest of nature is actually a machine, we're told. And that's, mm. very, that's very dominant in our culture. It's been dominant for hundreds of years, ever since the scientific revolution. This notion, it's like it started out as a metaphor. <clears throat> the uh, early scientists would look at something like a, com a complex clock, and they'd say, wow, it's amazing. And and they began to say, well, nature itself is just like this clock, but very, very complicated one. And, um, and if you look at nature in that way, it's kind of powerful because you can sort of break down those little parts and figure out how those things work. And that's been a big secret to our technological in innovations over the, all these hundreds of years. But it's also a wrong metaphor. In fact, nature is very much not a machine, as modern life um, sciences tell us. Uh, biology explains that ma machines are these things that don't have any intrinsic purpose in their life. We, we create them for what we want to do. Any living organism has a deep purpose and actually has subjectivity. And we actually, we're not essentially different from all the rest of life. We have a particular type of way of understanding things that uh, differentiates us somewhat, gives us power. Um, that we've developed over the rest of nature, but we're not separate from it. But if we if we look at nature as this, this resource to exploit, then it leads to a, a great deal of spiritual alienation, but also leads us on this path of devastation where we're basically um, consuming the earth at a rate that's unsustainable. Whereas if we look at the rest of nature as something that is our true home and something that we're part of, basically like a big extended family, it leads us to very different ways 
of relating to nature, relating to our technology, relating to our economy, um, and ultimately the purpose of our existence on this earth. Let's get metaphysical. Um, because there's something in what you said that to me, I've always kind of always recently thought was the issue, which is that we are subjective creatures. And so there is an inherent, um, alienation in, in being alive uh, as a human being, like nobody is going to experience the exact same thing that you experience. And so to me, it's, it's been a question of like, how do you map a kind of collective objectivity, which is culture? you know, so that we can all communicate and get by together and also overcome that, that initial alienation, mm -hmm. um, which I think has been part of the driving force between by, you know, the atomization of science and individualism. Like it seems to me that it's a symptom of that kind of existential awareness of being alive and act, but actually being a little bit separate. I, Cause I feel like that's a truth that we need to acknowledge if we're going to get past that narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, in a way, we can look at humans. I mean, the, 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 there's a seed of truth. I mean, there's a, a significant truth in what you're saying and a seed of truth to this whole worldview mm. of separation that I've just been describing really reflects our dominant culture. And actually, this earlier book I wrote, The Patterning Instinct, kind of looks in a way at the different layers of separation that emerged in the human experience mm. from life. Mm -hmm. um, from the rest of, of life. So really just our evolution as human beings led to this um, much more evolved uh, part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex. And that is what enables us to actually um, have a, a greater degree of sort of symbolic thinking. And it's, it caused early humans to have a sense of um, what's actually called um, theory of mind, a sense of each of us as selves separate from others and recognizing that others um, are, you know, we can actually sort of uh, relate to others as separate beings. Things like language um, both connected us with other human beings, but also allowed us to develop a, a sense of uh, being able to look at the rest of nature and develop things like technology to um, control it in many ways. So that separation is in a in big sense, part of the human condition. Mm. Um, and even the earliest times, um, even before any agrarian uh, set settling or anything like that in human activity, um, nomadic hunter-gatherers went from one continent to another and basically caused massive um, extinction of, of of the significant species in each continent they got to because of their power over the rest of nature. Um, so there is something inherent in the human experience that has this kind of sense of separation. And they could look at layers of separation. When we did settle in agrarian civilizations with fields, we set up, set up a separation from the rest of nature and there was wilderness out there and we cultivated mm. our crops here. Mm. And then we set up separation from us to other people. If a farmer got successful, they got wealthy and separated from others. And there's other layers then increased. So with the ancient Greeks, they even set up a separation in the cosmos. People always saw us be, being connected with Earth. Even if we put up those fences, there was some sense that there were gods out there and we had to like pray to the gods and um, get on well with them. The Greeks with Plato came along and said, there's a separate dimension where good and value comes from. And this is a polluted earth we live on, which yeah. kind of set the foundations for the scientific revolution. So in each step, there's layers of separation. And it's not that those, sep those layers of separation are inherently bad or wrong in the sense that they've given us so much of the benefits that we get from our human culture, from the technology that I can talk to you from thousands of miles away mm. and we're, we're connected. What is wrong is when we identify solely with that separate type of existence. So like a modern way of thinking starts with Descartes in many ways, who said, I think, therefore I am. That fa most famous phrase in philosophy, cogito ergo sum. And if you think about what that means, it's basically saying my only existence arises from that thinking capacity, that sort of part of my brain that's aware of itself. <clears throat> but it, what that does, it, it sort of eliminates any sense of actual meaning or value or intrinsic um, existence, essentially, from even our bodies, as well as other animals who don't think like we are. So that separation 
leads also to the sense of profound alienation. Because actually, once we feel ourselves so separate from things, we actually kind of lose a sense of the fullness of what our lives can actually, uh, what it actually means to be alive on, on the earth. But it sounds like then this interconnectedness that we need to create a new world, which we do absolutely need. And everybody that comes on this podcast talks about the, the drastic need for a new value system. And it has to come from a place of values and citizenship and, you know, what it is to sort of be human. Um, but we don't have a lot of time. You know, we've got about a decade to undo or at least acknowledge, understand, move past thousands and thousands and thousands of years of human sociological evolution. How do we do that? Uh, this is the crucial question of our times, really, because we are facing potentially, in fact, I would think it is the probably the biggest existential challenge the human species has yeah. ever faced. I mean, there's no uh, getting away from the magnitude of this crisis that we're causing. And it's one that if we don't turn around could lead to the actual collapse of our civilization, it lead to the collapse of ecosystems, um, and is already leading to the destruction so much of the richness of Earth today. So it's a huge question. And <clears throat> I don't think that any of us has the clear answer for how it this train change can be done, or even whether it can be done. I think that um, there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of both false despair and false optimism. I feel is going around in our um, in the thinking ar around the world today among those who are at least waking up to this issue. Mm -hmm. And to my mind, the the false despair is around the notion that everything that we're headed inevitably to collapse. There's nothing like exactly this point that there's there's so much that needs to be changed, and we're moving so fast in the wrong direction that it's a hopeless case. And certainly, I um, at times look at our situation and feel into that sense of the odds seem so daunting and the, the situation seems so terrible. I, so that's, that's one, one sort of way of looking at things. Another way is those who say, you know, and we, we can do it. Like, you know, all we've got to do is let the markets look at a great, the great thing, <laughs> look at renewables happening and the cost is coming down so much. Um, and, you know, we, all we've got to do is shift things around a little bit and we can make this change happen. I feel that's this false optimism that is almost worse than the despair because it leads people to miss the realities of what needs to be changed. So how can we change things at such a fundamental level? in such a short time. And I personally don't subscribe to a ter an exact deadline, even though I think it's helpful that earth scientists have put out this notion that we have 10 years to turn things around or we're probably we're on a path where we probably have two degrees Celsius of global heating locked in. And it may be too late to move towards a trajectory that can lead to further amplifying feedbacks. I think that's all helpful, but I also feel there's a danger of setting some deadline as if when, once we get to the year 2029 or whatever, December 31st, if we haven't got there, it's all too late and we can just throw our hands up in despair. There's mm -hmm. always some chance to turn something around up until the moment the civilization itself is um, actually totally collapsed, which may or may not happen in the foreseeable future. So I feel what's important is to realize that this change I'm talking about actually comes from a simple shift that any of us is and can do and is available to us at any moment because it's the shift in the worldview on the one hand is very profound because it we have to like look at the underlying ways in which we make sense of things. On the other hand, it's there open to us because each of us are living feeling sentient human beings. Each of us actually is connected with the rest of life. And opening our hearts and our minds and our eyes to that simply requires a, um, a kind of letting go of some of the conditioned ideas that we have um, inculcated in us from childhood, but actually realizing that they're not actually true. And what's helpful is that modern science 
validates that. And um, in addition to these great traditions of the past that have this deep wisdom that have developed over generations that are available to us to open up to and actually shift our own orientation based on that. So that's where the, the sense comes from, that there's something that is possible, even in such a short time frame. Do you mean uh, the separatism that needs to be overcome and science is showing how that's not a good thing? Could you give more examples of modern day values or lack of um, yeah, that you yeah. think are, are dangerous and need to be overcome? Yeah, sure. That's, yeah, thank you for that. Um, well, one that's very important is this notion that um, humans are fundamentally selfish mm. um, and that actually because of that, capitalism is the right system because it just harnesses that selfishness. And if we all act really selfishly in, in our best interest, then the whole world works most efficiently. And then oftentimes there's another layer that's put on that, that people will say, yeah, and even our genes are selfish. You know about the, the selfish gene, right? Like evolution itself is a result of selfish genes working over billions of years. And that's what life is about. So it's not just humans that are selfish. All of life is like that. It's a rat race. And whoever wins um, is the one who is the most selfish and the most cutthroat. And we're told that. And we believe that's scientifically true. And, um, you know, Richard Dawkins in his book, The Selfish Gene, back in the 1970s, did a great job of taking what was scientifically conventional thinking at that time and sort of priming it for this kind of neoliberal mm. ideology. Not that he himself is a neoliberal ideal, uh, ideologue, but his message fit perfectly with that way of thinking. So it became inculcated into our general culture. All of the, everything I've just said has been shown by science to be fundamentally wrong. Um, I mean, if you just look at the notion of the selfish gene, for example, and this sense that evolution actually uh, developed through selfish, through selfish genes, but there's two levels on which that's wrong. The gene itself is not the driver <coughs> of evolution the way that it used to be thought of as such. What modern uh, evolutionary biology shows is that there's actually, and there's this kind of interactive relationship between the cell and the gene and the organism and the environment. And actually we need to understand evolution as this complex dynamic sense of its relate interrelationships. Mm. But even more than that, this selfishness wasn't the cause of all these changes. People who have now studied this shift in the kind of complexity of life when it first began on earth to complex cells and multicellular organisms and ecosystems developing, all this stuff, and found that every one of these phases of like a jump in the complexity of life arose through cooperation. Mm -hmm. When different organisms learned that by working together, they could take what they specialized in and, and they discovered what's called mutually beneficial symbiosis. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's not a zero sum game. It's a positive sum game. And by working together, just in the sense of imagining like plants, are really good at photosynthesis. They take the energy from the sun, they turn it into nutrition. Animals um, take the, that kind of energy, they, they use the energy from the plants, they eat uh, um, something from the plants, they transport the seeds from the plants, help them to propagate. All of um, the way the wor world works is that kind of symbiosis. And then what is so amazing is that this notion of humans is selfish turns out to be the exact opposite too. It's, it's not the humans got to be so successful because we developed um, this ruthless selfishness. In fact, as humans evolved as um, uh, millions of years back and as kind of early pre-human hominids in the savannah in Africa, it was a dangerous environment. Those groups that learned best how to be cooperative with each other and actually work together as a group were the ones who were most successful. So as humans, we actually evolved what psychologists call moral emotions, things like embarrassment, shame, and the sense of um, really respecting and liking people who are generous, a sense of fair play. All these things are deeply embedded in our actual felt sensation. So it, we're not, we don't have to overcome our selfishness by using our minds to overcome what our inherent biology does to us. It's the opposite. We, simply by connecting with what we are as human beings, we're naturally driven to want to work together in groups.
I think it was Ugo Bardi who first came on the show and um, mm. said, well, you know, it's all Darwin's fault. I'm paraphrasing here. <laughs> he didn't say it's all Darwin's fault, but he said yeah. that theory of evolution that is, you know, the survival of the fittest in competition, that's right. been a huge problem. It's not the truth of the matter. Uh, we are a collaborative species. And imagine if that story had been told otherwise. And it's right. something that I've really, really stuck on. But nonetheless, I still, there seems to be a collaboration in separation as well. You know, I, um, in The Dawn of Everything by Graeber and Wengrow, one of the things that they show is that um, human cultures uh, all over the world were, could be very near each other physically, but very different culturally. And the only conclusion they could get to was that they needed to differentiate themselves. They chose to be different. That was how they got their self sense of identity, um, not through war or violence or whatever, but just the fact that they were different from their neighbors. So there seems to also be a collaboration in that self-other paradigm that's kind of haunted us forever. And is that something that we need to that we need to get past? Is that because this is the thing, right? I mean, so in so many conversations, people are like, oh, well, we need a global dictator to just come in and like make all the sweeping changes um to save the planet and yet the diversity of thought of culture of, of being um is also what makes being alive and being human and being in this modern world so rich and i just wonder if actually i mean a are we capable of it and then b would it be the right thing another export of a global culture or global value system mm -hmm. yeah you raised some really important questions there rachel and um uh I actually um, have some issues with some of the uh, the ideas that uh, the dawn of everything put out there. It's a I I love the overall message that book says, uh, basically saying there's nothing fixed about our humanity, and there's nothing fixed about some sort of hmm. line of cultural evolution that's led to this. And humans are capable of so many different things. But there's a, a few of their uh, kind of conclusions, like you were just describing there. I'm I'm not personally so convinced by. I think what is, um, I think what evolutionary biologists in general and and uh, cognitive anthropologists who look at the actual sort of evolution of human thought in those early years, what they show above all is we in our, in those early times we were nomadic hunter gatherers, and there were very few people on the earth. And there wasn't a sense, so much of a sense of um, us versus them in the way that we kind of think of in the in-groups versus out-groups. Mm. It was more just a general uh, sense of here's, um, here's how we live and here are our relatives over there. And if we don't like some group, we'll just kind of go and move out to a different area or whatever. Mm. But I, I do think that um, we did, th there is also ingrained in humans a sense of, relating to those who look and feel culturally similar similar to us and a sense of um be you know having a sense of separation in those who are are different from us and i think that the way to look at how to work through that in our modern age is a key concept that i actually come to again and again in my book the web of meaning which is the concept of integration and what I love about integration <clears throat> is what it really refers to, this notion of a system that can that is unified, but also with all its parts being differentiated. Um, so that's the key, is it it's it's um it, even though everything is separate in this in the system, they're related to each other in a way that causes a coherent whole. And integration is crucial for life itself. If you look at any system, any living system from a single cell to an organism, to an ecosystem, or anything in between the, the different scales, integration is key to how it works. That's actually sort of how life began on Earth, is mm. and basically macromolecules working, having its, each part being specialized in certain things and developing a sense of whole. So the whole affects all the different parts while the different parts affect the whole. So that process called reciprocal causality. And if we apply that concept to what you're just describing, what I feel is it, off, it offers us a way forward that doesn't have to deny 
our sense of deep connection with all of life and all other human beings around us, nor does it deny um, what it is to be a separate individual or a separate mm. group within that. So in a, in a society, in a healthy society, you can have different ethnic and cultural groups within that society, absolutely um, celebrating who they are, celebrating what makes them special, celebrating their uniqueness, and at the same time, uh, celebrating that as part of realizing they're part of something bigger. They're part of, the, of a society and they're part of a community, ultimately the whole community of life on earth. And a, a key element to where that leads to is a notion of what I call fractal flourishing. And the notion behind fractal flourishing is the sense that um, when I'm talking about the levels in which we're sort of part of these bigger systems, that the, one of the words that system scientists use to describe that is, is fractality. And a fractal relates to a pattern that repeats itself at different scales. Um, uh, so you can see fractals in like patterns on leaves or patterns of lightning or patterns of neurons in our brains, whatever they might be. Um, and that indicates self-organized activity as part of how life works. And the idea of fractal flourishing recognizes that each of us are flourishing as an individual. Um, it depends on flourishing, even at layers within us, different parts of us uh, to actually be able to flourish, but it depends on a healthy and flourishing system in which we're part of, our family system, our community, and ultimately our nation state, whatever it might be, all of life on earth, basically. And we live, we, we think oftentimes everything is zero sum game, like my benefit comes at the expense of somebody else. Or, um, you know, we as humans need to basically exploit the rest of nature to our benefit. And that leads to a lot of these separations, which leads to fear and um, anxiety and a lot of suffering for those who are being exploited, but even suffering for those doing the exploiting, because we have to kind of separate ourselves from those around us. The notion of fractal flourishing recognizes that actually in a really healthy ecosystem, of, and which our society also has the potential to be, all the different layers benefit from the health of the other layers around, around them. Key, absolutely key. But how do, you, how do you communicate that to people? I mean, what pragmatic steps can you take to encourage people to adopt um, a different worldview? Because, I mean... It's it's we haven't had a religious update in about like what fifteen hundred years because it's a hell of an undertaking. <laughs> well, what's fascinating about worldviews is um, that they they can on the one hand be incredibly stable. So um, just like you said, like we we sort of had uh, the, you know, Christianity arose like a couple of thousand years ago, and it's still so dominant much of its way of thinking. If we look at China, um, and the Taoist and uh, Confucian ideas in China arose again about 2,500 years ago, they're incredibly stable. But worldviews also can shift quite powerfully and quickly when there is something that uh, leads to a decoherence of that worldview. Again, if we think of it as a worldview as a system, a sort of conceptual system, it's a system that maintains itself because it seems to work for people. So new generations, um, as they grow up, they look at what their people in positions of authority, their parents or others in uh, positions of authority in society tell them. And, and it's not like a worldview has to be taught, like, like mathematics or your alphabet or something. It's implicitly transmitted because kids look at what others are doing and they kind of learn that those deep behavioral and, and conditioned ways of thinking, and that becomes their worldview. So what we do see there, when we look at how worldviews can transition, we see that um, when something happens, either internally in the system or externally affecting the system, that leads to the loss of authority of the, those in positions of power who expound that worldview, new generations very quickly look around for a different way of meaning making. So an example was actually China, where um, 
uh, in the 19th century, well, starting really in the 18th, but really getting powerful in the 19th and then 20th centuries, the West um, basically humiliated those in positions of authority in China with things like the Opium War. And just in general, they basically, they led to the, the kind of hollowing out of this Confucian culture that had been powerful for millennia. And then what happened was when young uh, uh, thinking people, caring people in that culture started to grow up and they saw their elders basically humiliated and they looked at the Western powers having, uh, having so much success, they started to say, we've got to like reinvent our way of making sense of things. And they looked to the West for that. So the worldview shifted very quickly, um, first to uh, one Western import, which was uh, communism, uh, and then, then another Western import, which is like global capitalism. So now we see sort of China basically <laughs> outdoing the West in terms of this uh, sort of e exploiting and extracting from the earth uh, e even more powerfully. So that's an example of how a worldview can actually shift within a generation or two when the authority gets starts to crumble that has been uh, um, uh, associated with that worldview. What we see today is something similar. We see basically an unraveling of the coherence of our dominant worldview. We've been told for generations, this is what, how things work. This is, you know, things are getting better and better. And so if you don't like it, you know, look at communism, well, that, well, that failed, you know, like, yeah. um, and now we see that things are not working. So as things unravel, it's a little bit like, imagine a tight weave of a rug and you want to kind of change the pattern of that rug. You try to sort of tear it, you can't because it's way too thick and um, tightly woven together. But imagine that rug is actually unraveling. Um, and all of a sudden, each fiber is much easier to, um, to actually tear and maybe to reweave. So my sense is that it's the very incoherence, it's the very disintegration of the um, stability of our current worldview that we're experiencing, which is terrifying and not something that I celebrate. Um, it's, it's disastrous to see how it is unraveling. But in that unraveling lies this potential for a transformation that could happen way faster than we might ever even believe is possible. But don't we have to take into account the, the cultural context? I mean, we live in a post-truth world. We live in the age of disinformation campaigns. Um, is and also, I mean, is the authority crumbling? The, to me, the authority seems to have gotten itself into an almost cartoonish position of power, whereby, you know, we have leaders like um, Bojo and Trump um, that can be caught red-handed and they just go, Neh. no, either, no, it didn't happen, even though we have evidence of it happening, or uh, they say, yeah, it happened, but it, does, it doesn't matter. You know, like there's different cultural sort of... Um, barriers to to taking down authority now i think given um the kind of information that exists and is circulated and then also the freedom with which our politicians and our leaders can respond to to certain events i haven't formulated that very well but you know what i mean oh i i do i think that um i mean one uh, sort of simple way of summarizing what, at least what I take from your saying, uh, from what you're saying, is that actually, I mean, there's no question that our institutions are um, getting weaker, but the what, uh, what we see happening is also a force towards populism, uh, sort of proto-fascism, mm. um, authoritarianism, um, and the uh, the power now of social media has led to exactly to even the fragmentation of a sense of truth itself, of a shared understanding of our reality. Mm. So there are all kinds of wacky ideas get to be more prevalent. And these are terrifying forces, um, which is why, you know, I don't go around um, uh, sort of describing myself as an optimist in the sense of, I don't think like, oh, it's highly likely that things will move in this positive direction. What basically happens is uh, as people get a sense of this ecological devastation taking place, even if they um, actually reject it conceptually and they're not, they're not like reading the stuff uh, in the news 
explaining that. Everybody gets the sense, the, the floods and the um, crazed uh, like wildfires and, the, and then the incredible inequalities in our economy. And exactly like you say, the rise of tyrannical um, thinkers like uh, Bojo or uh, uh, Trump or whatever that might be, everyone's getting the sense that they can't rely on the future. Um, and one natural orientation to re respond to that is with fear. And that fear leads to wanting to move towards those authoritarian voices that can give you some sort of make-believe sense of trust. Like, oh yeah, like that's this big guy says that he's going to save us and I'll, I'll just put my money with him and like, I'll just get behind him and then I can feel temporarily safer or whatever. That's what's happening around the world. It's terrifying to see. And it also is leading further, I think, to the unraveling of the system that uh, most people have taken for granted since the end of the Second World War. Uh, so I agree with all of that. Um, and at the same time, there are other layers of shift happening in the system. You have uh, children, school children and teenagers looking at what's going on in the world and recognizing that they have um, quite possibly a disastrous future to look forward to. Rather than just figuring out, oh, I better learn to be uh, you know, a good accountant or lawyer so I can uh, make my money in this world the way I was, they're saying, I need to develop different skills. I need to um, be part of, we need to shift something. I don't accept this anymore. People like Greta Thunberg and those uh, who she speaks for, what they're basically saying is, what you guys are telling us doesn't work. We don't accept that. But what's crucial is these um, groups, or these ways of young people as they enter into adulthood and positions of power uh, are going to be looking for alternative ways of meaning making. If this modern system isn't working and they recognize that, uh, then the question is, what can they turn to? And that's where I feel the most important thing that we can offer um, each generation now over the next uh, few decades in the world is a coherent alternative system, one that can actually lead to a path of future flourishing, one that basically can sort of feel like a beacon of light, if you will, in this uh, darkness that is encroaching on us. I feel that that is possible. I feel that that actual, um, that future flourishing is right there for us. The ideas are there. Then the ideas around economics, uh, the ideas around governance, the ideas about how we shift our relationship with the living earth. All those ideas are there. Because the, the media is basically owned by the same corporations that are destroying the earth, those ideas don't get much traction um, in normal mainstream thinking, which is why it becomes even more crucial for um, any of us uh, such as the people that you've interviewed on your podcast, people like Ugo Bardi, people like Jason Hickel, um, to actually get those ideas more embedded in our society so that people can actually make that shift in spite of these very powerful uh, forces of darkness, if you will, that are, uh, th that are there in the world today. So would you say that people need to be um, educated about the alternatives and educated about the reality of the situation and the reality of the potential future as well, and then be allowed to make an educated choice or decision for their own lives about their value system? Or do we need to create a value system and also educate them in that? Well, the value system is already there. <clears throat> and it's there in indigenous values that have been very consistent over a um, millennia that are based on our real, our evolved human experience, are based on our sense of being connected with the living earth, of actually being connected with each other. They're there in some of the great traditions of, um, of the world, in Buddhism, in Taoism, uh, and, and in other um, traditions that emphasize our deep interconnectedness. And the value systems are actually pointed to by the findings in modern science that I've been touching on in evolutionary biology, in uh, neuroscience and other systems, sciences that show this deep interconnectedness. I, as I try to describe in this book, the web of meaning, 
it's not like we have to create a value system. And, you know, I'm not like setting myself up as an author. So yeah, another white guy from the global north who says, mm -hmm. to me, I've got the answer. Like here, mm -hmm. here, here's the new, the new story that'll save us, whatever. Um, more than anything, what I see myself doing in this book is showing, is just weaving together um, the strands of insights and understanding that are already there. That it's a little bit like just kind of opening our eyes to what's out there. It's as though our system right now conditions us to kind of close our eyes like tightly <clears throat> to this reality of our interconnectedness from early childhood onwards through advertising and, and through social media and through the implicit messages that are given to us. So I, I feel the, the challenge for each of us is to essentially rediscover what our core uh, human uh, in, embedded intelligence always knew, but simply uh, was told to kind of shut down as we sort of grow up into adolescence and adulthood. And the ideas are out there, but even more than the ideas and deeper than the ideas is our felt experience, is our reconnection with our with the life within ourselves, our reconnection with nature, our reconnection with other uh, people around us. We can um, simply reorient towards that reconnection. It's available to us. Um, it just requires a, an initial spark of kind of waking up to realize that what's wrong with our society right now is not a, a is not a particular issue of inequality or a particular issue of um, nationalism or a particular issue of uh, whatever it might be, but something deeper in the way we make sense of things. Yeah, but I mean, it is also an issue of, of oligarchy, politically and economically, um, because as you've touched on, I mean, why is the economic system set up in the way that it is? Why are messages not getting through? Um, why are clowns appointed to office and then allowed to stay there? It is because power is concentrated um, with a very, very small group of people. So, you know, you and I can talk about meaning all day, um, but it doesn't do anything to um, undo or attack or change the institutionalized problems of inequality and um, well, yeah, just, yeah, oligarchy that, that has kind of created this mess. Well... I think I disagree with you that it doesn't do anything to change that. It may not do anything if we just talk about it um, without actually um, moving into what that leads us to in terms of our own experience, our relationship with others. But I think a, one way to look at it, uh, I've been talking a few times about looking at ecosystems and kind mm -hmm. of learning actually from nature itself. Say you're walking in a forest and, and you're looking around, you might think that what, um, what is really matters in the forest is kind of what you see. Like you see these trees and you see the leaves. And if a tree falls, you're very aware of that. Uh, that's what you think is the reality. And meanwhile, actually in that forest, all these different tree roots are connecting with this incredible mycorrhizal fungal network, which you don't see, which is under the earth. But it's actually uh, what biologists have now discovered um, is that through that, that mycorrhizal fungal network, the trees are actually communicating with each other. Yeah. If there's a tree at the edge of the forest that needs more nutrition, um, the trees don't just communicate signals to each other. They'll even use that network to actually transmit nutrition to other trees and different species of trees that do better at different times of the year actually then kind of store the energy and transmit that to others at other times. There's this incredible community going on and, and things happening we're unaware of in that forest because it's below the surface. And I think the same is true of our human uh, um, system change. That what we are very aware of is the horrendous headlines we read in the newspapers every day about war in Ukraine or another like absurdity that an authoritarian regime has doing or the fragmentation of democracy in the UK or the US or whatever. We're only too aware of those things. What we're less aware of is these kind of shifts that are taking place at deeper layers in people's connectedness. And while we are only too aware now of the dangers of the internet, for example, 
and the siloization that takes place and the fake news that gets transmitted. There's something else that has actually happened in just the last couple of decades is an even greater sense of our human interconnectedness. So when something happens like George Floyd gets murdered by a, a brutal uh, a policeman in the US and, and it's caught on video, within days, that energy of that, the outrage of that is transmitted to the rest of the world. Suddenly people go, uh, um, going on demonstrations around the world, statues are being overthrown in Bristol or whatever, uh, thousands of miles away from what actually happened because of that sense of interconnectedness. Now, again, I'm not um, uh, trying to put myself up as this optimist and saying, don't worry, we're going to make it. It'll all happen. My, all I'm basically saying is that the, the forces um, that have this potential to transform our civilization into a better direction are there. They will only basically outweigh these forces for destruction that are so obvious and so much in front of our face right now. If enough of us actually connect in with that and actually through those kind of mycorrhizal um, networks that are less easy to see, and to your credit, this kind of podcast are part of that network. Those are the kind of some of those links that allow people to uh, connect with each other. But that's our, our only chance really is for each of us to realize we're part of this big system, something that connects all of us as human beings, which is basically virtually every one of us as human beings actually has a heart. We actually care. We actually want a better world for future generations. We don't want to see destruction taking place around us. There might be a few pathological types who actually get off on destruction. Most people want to feel they're doing good. They're conditioned by our current society to be told that they're doing good when in fact they may be part of systems that are causing more damage, but they want to feel they're doing good. And to the extent they can, they get to wake up and see what's possible. That's what our hope lies. I, d I don't disagree with you. I think that's a, I think that is, it is such an important part um, of bringing a better future into being is having a vision, having hope, tapping into the the best of humanity um and refusing to believe that narrative that the worst of a few represents um the vast majority nonetheless we've talked about the complexity of systems here uh we've talked about the danger of atomization uh of separation of, of siloing like does it not does that not fall into the same trap when we kind of boil it all down to oh well it's meaning and it's interconnectedness it is a systems problem that we have. There are institutionalized issues that we have. There's history to deal with. There's, you know, geopolitics to deal with. The supply, you know, it is so, 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 so complex. Could, would we not also risk um, a certain movement of people? And, you know, typically global north, white, middle class, you know, people that have access to privilege just go, right, okay, this is a spiritual problem then. I'm just going to be really, really spiritual um, and I'm going to connect back in, and that that's all I have to do. Yeah, well, I think that that kind of response saying, oh, it's a spiritual problem, that's all it is, is the exact opposite of what I suggest in my writings. Because to come back to that key uh, concept I mentioned earlier of integration, the way I actually explore what the very concept of spirituality means mm. is really means an orientation towards our connectedness. And um, above all, when uh, I use the title, the web of meaning uh, to describe how everything is interconnected and meaning itself arises from that connectedness. And um, my primary message is that what we label in our dominant culture as spiritual um, or what we label as scientific, or what we label as an um, introspective versus activism or political, um, all these things we think of as separate items, that none of them are separate. Mm. So in my understanding, a true spirituality, if you want to use that word, is actually what leads us to recognize our deep interconnectedness with all things and our moral and ethical interconnectedness. Mm. There was a great Buddhist teacher called Thich Nhat Hanh um, who um, used, he coined a word, uh, interbeing. Mm. Um, and he'd hold up a piece of paper and say, in this piece of paper um, is the sunshine 
and also the cloud and also everything because like i wouldn't be holding this if all these different systems hadn't come together mm. to make this piece of paper happen and by the same token in that piece of paper and that i can walk to a store and buy for an incredibly cheap price um is actually globalization and monocrop agriculture where um where rich uh ecosystems have been cut down in order to grow these monocrop trees and basically kicking people off their land and, and almost slave wage labor allowing the and the pollution of the pulp mills and the aircraft causing the pollution getting that piece of paper in my hand for a ridiculously low price so the this notion of real deep spirituality is holding that piece of paper and recognizing that everything is connected recognizing that um the everything that we get to enjoy in the global north comes from privilege that came through hundreds of years of colonial genocidal exploitation which continues to this very day mm -hmm. and as Jason Hickles shows so well in his recent research and mm -hmm. realizing that uh, none of these problems can be dealt with separately we can't use technology alone to beat climate change or whatever that's just a, a nonsensical idea because it's deeply systemic so the kind of spirituality i'm talking about is basically a deep understanding of the systemic interrelation between all things and not just the way systems work but an ethical and moral and political interrelation between all things and out of that a recognition that none of us is separate from that system so coming out of that deep recognition of integration is a recognition that and um, each of us actually and um, is part of creating whatever future happens that the future is not some separate spectator sport that you and I can sit here and talk about it and that's what they're doing it's actually what we're doing it's what everyone listening to um this podcast is doing is creating the future as a collective enterprise what a uh, fantastic sort of hopeful note to end on um and i really there's something about those final bits that you just said about kind of also mapping moral and emotional um you know interconnectedness onto systems and using that as a way to reinforce you know the what we know needs to happen which is better understanding how we are all connected whether that's on the materials level or spiritual level or cultural level or whatever um in order to to get through the next stage of whatever life has in store for for all of us on the planet um so thank you very much and thank you for your time it was such a pleasure speaking with you yeah thank you i enjoyed that so much rachel thank oh, you good i'm really pleased who would you like to platform i've got a uh a great thought for you actually so we've been talking a lot about interconnection and about how there's a lot that we can learn from uh those cultures that have separate value systems from uh what we might view as our uh, our dominant world view and there's a book that's recently been published um by an indigenous um scholar and a scholar in um actually in evolutionary psychology is called restoring the kinship world view indigenous voices introduced 28 precepts for rebalancing life on planet earth the co-authors are uh an an indigenous person named Wahink Pe Topa which means four arrows in english and the other co-author is Dasha Narvaez and it's a beautiful book because um the way it works is it looks at a uh all these like more than two dozen different uh sort of dimensions of where an indigenous understanding actually helps us to look at the possibilities of seeing the world in a different way and oftentimes we're kind of used to looking at sort of clichés about indigenous so oh yeah they say everything's all all relatives and everything's all connected and and that's about as far as we go and this book is a is wonderful because it goes really deep into these different ways of how you can apply that worldview in everything whether it's looking at sports or music mm. or um justice or um any kind of aspect of life and seeing well there's a different way we can make sense of it i would be happy to introduce you to those authors if you'd like to yes 
have that. Fantastic. Yes, that would be fantastic. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Again, thank you for your time. It was lovely speaking with you. Great. Okay, well, take care and thank you, Rachel. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Jeremy's work, I put the link to his website over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. A real thank you to the Planet Critical supporters. This work just wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you all for listening. I'll see you next week.